Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. fun. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I want to read just a few verses of scripture here this evening. I'll start with verse number one. The Bible says, and after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. Tonight, uh, tonight, and probably next week, I want to speak along the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. Conceivably, we could be done within eight weeks or less. I'll say it like that because I'm believing it be eight weeks or less. I'm hoping by the time the kids get out of school, we're finished with the book of Revelation. Well, that's how it about equates out to the marriage of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I love you, Jesus, this evening. Once again, Lord, as I commonly do, ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts and minds. Pray, O oh Lord, for enlightenment, God, and the Scriptures. Lord, let there be revelation of the revelation, I pray. God, I know you're able to help us, Lord, this evening. Let it be more than just a, Lord, sharing of information. God, let your anointing touch us. God, and grant us, Lord Jesus, the help that we need in the days to come, Lord, from your word. Jesus' name that I pray. Amen and amen. Everybody say amen. Amen. You may be seated. The marriage of the Lamb. This is our series. This has been a many, many part series. Amen. If you're just now joining us, I'm sorry. I apologize. Get on the podcast and you can review from the beginning to present where we are. Chapter 18 ended with the silence. If you remember, chapter 18 ended with the silence of of Babylon, a city that would have been known at one time with a bunch of hustle and bustle and a lot of activity and perhaps a noisy city. The only thing that we heard at that time among the silence was the cries of the kings of the earth, the cries of the merchants, the cries of those who had ships or took the cargo upon the sea among all the stillness were their lamentation and their cry. 
And although it seemed as though the earth was still in silence, the Bible spoke to us that heaven was commanded to rejoice. While the earth was mourning, heaven was commanded to rejoice. In Revelation 18.20, the Spirit of the Lord said through the angel, Rejoice over her, thou heaven and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Now this chapter, Revelation 19, has been called by many the Alleluia Chorus because this is the first time in New Testament Scripture that the word Alleluia is even used throughout the whole New Testament. And it's used four times, and all four times it's used here in chapter number 19, the Alleluia Chorus. Alleluia is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Hallelujah, that we're so familiar with. Someone says, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. We sing the song, hallelujah is the highest praise. But the word hallelujah is really composed of a couple of words. Uh, one, hallel, meaning praise. The other one, jaw, meaning the Lord. Four times hallelujah or hallelujah used in Revelation 19, and it's used nowhere else. And hallelujah can be used as both a command and a comment. It basically means praise the Lord. Can be a command telling us to praise the Lord or a comment for those who are praising. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so they're doing exactly, heaven is doing exactly what they were commanded to do. He said, Rejoice over what is happening. And they are at least four times, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And there are various reasons why heaven may be rejoicing and being glad and rejoicing. Number one, as we see in verse number one of Revelation 19, they give this verbiage which is common, commonly oftentimes attributed to the Lord, that salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. But namely, firstly, they say, Alleluia, salvation is unto the Lord our God. So a great reason why all heaven, amen, the church that has been raptured, those that have been martyred, so on and so forth, rejoices is because salvation I underscore complete salvation has come. Because we live in a time right now that if you've been born again of the water and the spirit, you've experienced salvation, all right? And uh, also every day that we live, there is a certain element of salvation, saving that we're experiencing. But the totality of salvation is not complete until these bodies are transformed. There's the complete salvation of the body. If I can... Uh, and an old reverend said that years and years ago, and he is absolutely true, he said salvation is the most elastic word in the Bible. Salvation is the most elastic word in the Bible. With that, 1 Thessalonians, just to understand what I'm saying, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, the Bible says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, as the old, old preacher said, is a very elastic word. Because when you talk about salvation, the, one of the first works of salvation is a little fancy term you see through the scripture called justification. Justification. Whenever you're justified, if you break it down, it's just as if I'd done nothing. And so whenever you're born again of the water and the spirit, your past, your sins from there backward, it's just as if you had done nothing or was not born into sin. You stand before God 
whole. You stand before God perfect. That is one element of salvation, justification. Amen. That has to do with your spirit. Uh, your spirit at that moment in time is the saving, if you will, of your spirit. And from the standpoint of where we live today, if that's been somewhere back there, justification is in your past. You was saved. But another aspect of salvation is a fancy word in Scripture called sanctification. Sanctification, synonyms for, synonyms for sanctification might be holiness, separation, distinction, sanctification. And what sanctification has to do with your present day ever living by sanctification, salvation of sanctification is that I am being saved today from the power of sin. Because sin's not left, sin's still around. You might not be sinning, but the concept of sin, sin as a nature, sin as an entity, you might call it, is still around. And so every day with conscious mind and conscious heart, uh, we allow God's will to be performed, hopefully in our life, and so we are being saved every day. So we're saved, born again of the water and spirit, but every day we are being saved. Because once we come to God through justification, his hope is, if rapture doesn't take place, right after we're saved, all right, is that we'll continue to grow thereby and there'll be elements of our life of separation and holiness that will take place. And so we, we, what, I was saved, but I am being saved. I was saved from the penalty of sin. Christ took care of that on Calvary, took all of those handwritings of the ordinances that were written against us and nailed them to the cross. The penalty of sin, he took care of that, amen, through our justification. But the power of sin is still prevalent in the world today. And it's only through sanctification, that element of salvation. I am being saved today, every day that I live. If I am uh, allowing myself to be obedient to the word of the Lord and, and the statutes of God, I'm being saved. But there's something that happened in the future, still yet to happen, a word called glorification. Glorification has to do with these bodies. Talking still yet about the present, most of our battles take place right here. Victory and defeat happens right here. Your actions are tied to your thoughts what you premeditate, mm -hmm. before it ever is an action, it is a thought. And so the battle of the mind is where our being saved happens every day. No wonder he told us to take a helmet of salvation, telling us to put on the whole armor of God, not just a one time, but on a daily means, that we need to do that because we're, we're, we're trying to guard our mind. And so when we talk at justification, the spirit being saved, if I can, when we talk about present day salvation, sanctification, being saved every day, deals with our, our mind, which so can also be interpreted as mind. And so for the future, there's glorification. There's still a part of us, you know, spirit, soul, and body. Body, there's still a part of us that needs saving. And it is our bodies Amen. And that is to happen in the future. Whenever the Christ comes and catches his church away, and even what we're talking of here in Revelation 19, uh, the, the wickedness of the world to be judged, our bodies are glorified. They will be saved from the presence of sin. So, so we're, we're, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We are presently being saved from the power of sin. And the future will be saved from the presence 
of sin. So salvation is elastic word. I was saved, I am saved, and I will be saved. And so whenever we speak about them rejoicing, heaven rejoicing, they're rejoicing because they've already had the justification, the sanctification, but now glorification. Uh, the presence of sin is no longer in existence. Uh, Christ has already taken care of both the religious side, the commercial side of Babylon that's existed for eon of time. And so they have much reason to rejoice. As a matter of fact, in Romans 3, 13, rather, in verse 11, the apostle Paul said in Romans 13, 11, he says, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now, or one say now, is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Paul's not alluding to the fact, you know, you can, you can, be, you can be born again in the water spirit now more than you could ever in the entirety of your life. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying our salvation, what he's talking about is the salvation, the ultimate deliverance from the presence of sin. Paul from his vantage point of even then, which is many years backward from now, was saying, listen, he says, our salvation is nearer. The whole end of this thing, the wrapping up of this thing, being delivered totally from the presence of sin, the catching away of the church, he said from that standpoint right then is nearer than you believe. If he told them back there in the first century that they were nearer to the end of, of time of being released from the presence of sin than what they believe, I guarantee you, you need to embolden those words, capitalize them, underlies them, underlies them, underline them because we're closer even now than what they were then. So they had much reason to rejoice because of that. And he speaks, he goes on in verse number two and speaks of God. Here he's judged the wicked, judged those that have done wrong. Amen, the wickedness of the world that is. And he says, for true and righteous in verse two are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore. And so one thing is important about God. God, God's judgment is not just some type of whimsical judgment. You know what, I think I'm just gonna judge someone. I think I'm just gonna bring the hammer down. But he said that his judgment is true and his judgment is righteous. Another reason why heaven could be rejoicing, of course the Lord commanded them to, but they had reason to rejoice, and it's contained there in verse number two, because Babylon, the great whore, or the religious side, if you will, of Babylon, has been dealt with. Amen. Uh, the one that had made all the kings of the earth to drink of her cup, God says, all right, now I'm going to make you to drink of my cup. And the Bible says, also in verse two, that he is avenging the blood of his servants at her hand. And what this calls our mind back to, or it may, is once again back in Revelation 6, the fifth seal whenever it's open, there's a cry that comes out from underneath the altar of those that have been martyred for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 6.10, they ask this question to the Lord, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? In verse, and here in chapter 19, he says, with his judgment of the great harlot, he is avenging the blood of his servants at her hand. So they had reason to rejoice because of that. Thirdly, they had reason to rejoice, not just the religious side of Babylon, but also, as we've seen in chapter 18, the commercial side of Babylon is being taken care of as well. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 17, concerning the great whore, she is spoken of as being burned with fire. In Revelation 18, speaking of the city of Babylon, 
It's spoken of as being burned with fire as well. So when we come to Revelation 19 and 3, not only could this be alluding to when it says the smoke rose up forever and ever concerning her, not only could it be alluding to the city, but it could also be alluding to uh, the, the woman, the great harlot as well, the religious and commercial sides. And it says that smoke goes up forever and ever. And we've seen, we've seen the terminology of that a little bit before. And I think what, what, what is trying to be relayed to us is the permanence of the destruction. It's not like a wound. We're talking about total annihilation. We're talking about destruction. Babylon's not coming back at any time. It's not going to be coming back at any time in the future. It will be and is at this moment in time of the Scripture forever, forever finished. And so they exclaim, Alleluia, praise the Lord. Praise God because she is not coming back. And so there's a lot of worship right here going on in heaven. There's a lot of worship and praise that's happening. And we see, though, some of the players involved in this as the 20 and 4 or 24 elders around about the throne. The four living creatures round about the throne. They're rejoicing. They're bowing down. They're worshiping. This seems to be a common posture of the 24 elders and the four beasts round about the throne that they worship. Back in Revelations 4 and 5, all the way back there, when we were first introduced to them, they're found round about the throne. They're worshiping. They're praising. And it would seem as though they, they have no purpose for their praise and worship except that God is just God. But in reality, they could have already been praising and worshiping for anticipation of what was going to come to pass, what was taking place right now in Revelation chapter number 19. Amen. The destruction of evil, just worship, you know, kind of praise in advance, worship in advance for what God was going to do, taking care of the evil, particularly Babylon. And so the worship in the beginning of the verses of, of chapter 19 they are celebration praises, no doubt, for the completion of God doing what God said he would do. Amen. And they're found in their common posture. Now, you, you're going to have to go back in your memory here for a moment. Because in Revelation 4, when we looked at the 24 elders, we surmised that they may stand as a representative, if you remember, a representative for or of the church. Revelation 19, this is the last time you will see the 24 elders mentioned particularly as 24 elders. As a matter of fact, here in this chapter, after the marriage of the Lamb, they are no longer mentioned. If they were a representative, if they were a representative of the church, that church who is the bride just got married. You understand, we don't see them anymore enumerated or listed in the rest of Revelation. Amen. So, so that's something to consider. In verse number five, with all this hallelujah, amen, worship going on, man, they was just prodding them along. There was a voice that came out of the throne room and, and spoke and said, hey, praise God. I mean, it's just like they're already praising. You know, like kind of serve sometimes. You clap and raise your hand. Someone says, well, praise God. We're like, we are praising God. But he came in just a little bit more and said, praise God. All ye his servants that fear him, both small and great. But there's a particular thing about this praise our God in verse number five. Because the verb praise here in verse number five in that phrase praise our God is in the present tense. And so what that means is it's a command really to keep on praising the Lord. 
They'd already been praising, but basically it was just a plea to say, hey, don't stop. Keep on praising the Lord. Telling all the church that's gathered there, the, 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 the living creatures around about the throne, keep on praising the Lord. And so if I may just for a moment lean upon that and say this, whenever there is a theory of some that, you know what, I'll praise the Lord when I get to heaven to counteract not praising him now. I'll praise the Lord when I get to heaven. That theory is a little bit flawed because heaven isn't the place where you begin to praise God. It's the place where you keep on praising God, which means you must start praising him before you ever get there or arrive. Amen. It wasn't commence. It was keep on praising God. The Lord and they had a lot to praise the Lord about another aspect they might praise the Lord about is in verse number six is in verse number six because the Bible spoke concerning him or not verse number six yes verse number six the last phrase hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth in other words the all God almighty God truly reigns the omnipotent the all-powerful god amen now that's been spoken from eons of time amen throughout the scripture and he has reassured his people of that but now with the destruction of the evil through babylon amen they see very well he is the all-powerful god none of his purposes has been withheld none of his purposes have been frustrated Amen, because of what he had just done in the past two chapters. Amen, as far as history is concerned, it would seem like this entity, this Babylon, this evil, this wickedness had lasted from generation to generation to generation. It always has been, it always will be type of mentality. But God shows up and brings it to naught very quickly, according to Scripture, very quickly, and God decided to handle it. They say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, Amen, because he truly reigns. The almighty God, the all-powerful, omnipotent God reigns forevermore. He is everlasting. Another great aspect, and this is where I want to spend probably the remainder of my time, the reason why that they are praising and hallelujahs to the Lord is because the marriage of the Lamb had come. The marriage of the Lamb had come. I've said just in recent weeks, that marriage was and is just a part of normal life. Part of normal life. Just as much as birth and death, marriage. Many times it's just a part of normal life. The normalcy of life is seen through births, marriage, and deaths. That's, that's life, we say. And it's a feature of every generation. It's not new, folks. Uh, we're only here because someone else got married, you know. <laughs> Amen. But nevertheless, it's just part of normal life. And as a result of that, Jesus oftentimes used this model of marriage as, as, a, as a picture or even in his parables to relay oftentimes truth that you and I can wrap our hands around because it was something that was familiar to every generation and to people in general. But here's what we must avoid, and I'm just doing this as a caution. Every time the Lord used marriage as a model in his parables, we can't necessarily take all those parables and mesh it with this marriage of the lamb and mesh it all together and say, well, this is how this correlates to this. That's, no, 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 no. 
God may have used it for a parable for a particular purpose or a particular reason here that may be different than what is going on here right here in Revelation chapter 19. And in order to, in order to emphasize that, uh, I turn your attention to Matthew 22. And I don't have no verses 2 through 14. I'm not reading them, Sister McGee. But nevertheless, this is one of the parables that Jesus used this concept and this idea of marriage. He compared the kingdom of heaven to a king who had a wedding uh, feast for his son. And as, as the story goes, they went out and it was time. All things were ready. The wedding feast was ready. It was time. They had evidently invited some guests. Uh, but the original guests that were invited, they refused to attend the feast for whatever reason. They had different reasons. They refused to attend the feast, which is, if we're looking at a very good parallel, that when Christ came, he first came and extended his hand to the Jews. Amen. Even from Abraham until the time of the New Testament Scripture, his hand was to the Jews. Uh, come, but they in certain measures refuse likewise. So what happens in the parable is that he had his servants go out, go to the highways and the hedges and compel them. Doesn't matter who they are. Get every walk of individual, just compel them to come to the feast. And so here we have people of every walk of life. They're being invited to the feast. Gentiles, could I say. That's Gentiles. The hand now extended to us because the Jews refuse to come to this feast. And as it was all said and done, the king finally come to where the wedding feast was taking place. There was one person found at the feast that did not have the right garment. You remember? And therefore he was kicked out of the wedding feast because he did not have the right garment. Amen. And so marriage there and the wedding feast and the wedding was all used as an illustration for the Lord Amen. He, he, there, the church, if you will, was the guest to the wedding feast. But you can't just take that and merge that over in Revelation because that's not what takes place in Revelation. Uh, the, 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 the church is not the guest to the wedding feast. The church is the bride of the wedding. And so you can't, you, you can't overlap those. Same thing with Matthew 25 with the ten virgins, five foolish and five wise. Uh, what's really being underscored there through the wedding or the marriage is being emphasized is that you must be prepared. You got to be prepared. There must be a sense of preparedness, amen, that's going on. And so in the ancient world, I mean, marriage was among the greatest reasons for celebration. One, some of the greatest uh, social gatherings Social events that ever happened all centered around marriage. I dare to say it's a pretty big social event still today. You see a lot of people that come out, amen, whenever somebody is getting married. Amen. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of time and money and planning that's involved in that social event. Amen. More so than any other social event in our society today, perhaps even then. But in biblical culture, there were primary three parts to the marriage process. Number one, betrothal, all right? Number two, presentation of the bride. And number three, you might call the actual marriage ceremony or the, the consummation, if you will, of the marriage. Number one, if we talk about betrothal, that means to be engaged, or the old word that Scripture uses, espoused. To be engaged or to be espoused. Amen whenever we consider the marriage of the Lamb, that's the way it's termed in Scripture, the marriage of the Lamb, is a great reason for celebration because, there's a reason why everybody's rejoicing, it's a great reason for celebration because the marriage of the Lamb was on the mind of God 
before the foundation of the world. So when we come to Revelation 19, it's nothing but an unfolding of the will of God that he had from the very beginning of time. That's big stuff, folks. What it, what it was was, it was like, it would be like some man saying today, I'm going to marry her one of these days. And almost 2,000 years elapse and then do it. Or more than 2,000 years. Uh, <laughs> almost 8,000 or however many thousands. Let's just do generality. Thousands of years elapse and then do it. Now that's reason for celebration. Whereas some people can't wait three months, let alone thousands of years. <laughs> Amen. And then doing it. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, considering that this was on the mind of God before the foundation of the world, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Again, and this is a little bit, and I can't reteach Ephesians series, but this is in Ephesians. The key phrase there is us in him. That's referring to the church. Because whenever we are in him, we become the church. Where He's not referring to individual salvation. He's referring to the church according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. God, from the very foundation of the world, had ch- chose that there would be a church that would be his bride. God, from the foundation of the world, didn't necessarily predestine that it would be you that would be a part of the church. But he said there's going to be a church that's going to be my bride. By our own choice and will, we have the ability to decide whether we're a part or not a part of the church. The church is his. Your decision whether or not you're going to be a part of what he says is already his. Amen. And so the church, uh, God has ordained from the foundation of the world that there will be a church. And that church will serve as the bride of Christ. All the New Testament uh, letters that are written to churches were written to churches that were spirit-filled. Acts 2.38, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, filled the Holy Ghost and evidence to speak in other tongues. So whenever he's speaking to Ephesians, he's speaking to a church that's been saved, justification, born of the water and of the Spirit. And I'll say this again. God doesn't predestinate people, but he has predestined his church. And if you're a part of the church, you got a predestination. If you step outside the realm of the church, forget it. Amen. But he did predestine his church to be betrothed, engaged, espoused to him. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, the apostle Paul said, he said, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, speaking to the Corinthians, born again, water and spirit, the church, for I have espoused you, the church, to one husband. I betrothed you that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so with this betrothal was a legal binding contract that was signed by both sets of parents contracting the marriage of their children. Interesting note, not always, but oftentimes these contracts were signed before they even had children. In other words, someone says, hey, if you have a daughter someday, we have a son, we'd like them to get married. Oftentimes that was the way it was. And the reason why they might do that is because they understand just through husband and wives that there's a great affinity for each family. They might have shared common values. They might have shared common purposes. And as a result of that, they had friendships between one another. And their families were friendships. And when their families are friendships, when they have kids, their kids form 
relationships. And so they had an idea sometimes that, you know what, we see that we share some of the common values and purposes uh, in our lives, and we would like our children uh, to be married so that those values and purposes will continue. God says, I have a purpose for the church. I have a plan for the church. These are the values that I want the church to have. And so I can already say I'm going to be betrothed to the church because this is what I know the church to be. It relates very closely with what I want because I designed it to begin with. And so I can already choose the church before the church is ever born to be my wife because I'm setting the criteria for the church. Amen. In other words, oh, Lord, people would have problems with this today. In other words, family trumped individuals. Family trumped individuals. In other words, it was more important to choose the family than it was to choose the individual. Amen. And so this is the betrothal. Amen. And he, he, he's betrothed himself to the church before the foundation of the world. So they're rejoicing because what's taken place here is something that has been in process for a long time. But then secondly, this marriage whole thing aspect, second process, progress, presentation, presentation. Presentation was a time of festivities. This took place prior to the actual wedding ceremony or the consummation of the marriage. As a matter of fact, many references throughout literature say that they could last, these festivities could last for a week. You think you paid a lot for your wedding? You invite all of your guests, they stay for a week, you take care of their lodging, you take care of their food every day. <laughs> Bunny, they put great expense into this time of presentation and festivities. Amen. During the presentation, the bridegroom would go to the house of the bride and he would get the bride along with her maidens and her, her, her entourage and take them to his house where the festivities were being held and began and he would present my lovely bride. Here's the one that I have been betrothed to. Here is my lovely bride. We see this in Scripture, John 14 and verse 2. Jesus speaking, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. Presentation. What happens at presentation? Well, presentation for the church, I believe, happens at rapture day and continues until wedding day. It lasts for a while. I say rapture day. We've already went through all the lists of pre-tribulation rapture. The last week of Daniel, if we're going to look at it at that, it lasted then, I guess, a week <laughs> through the terms of, if you use the word week, but seven years of celebration and festivities of the presenting of the church, the presenting of the bride. But the finality comes right here in Revelation 19. The marriage of the lamb, the, the ceremony is here. The final hours are here. The marriage supper, amen, is here. They're going to consummate their marriage. It's the chief event, amen. But there's something different, folks. And this would probably wouldn't settle well society now either. There's something different now compared to then, old culture, and that is this. At the old culture, the bridegroom was the center of attention. Not the bride. Because note the scripture in verse 7. It speaks in terms of the marriage of the lamb. I say the marriage of the bride. It also speaks, it's the marriage supper in verse number 9 of the lamb. 
who's taken central stage in culture long ago was the bridegroom, not the bride. He's, he's been waiting on this for a long time. He takes center stage right now. And, and it may be, may be a little thought-provoking to consider that in verse number 7, the Bible speaks, and his wife, his to-be wife, this wife that's here ready to marry him right now, this exchange is going to happen, hath made herself ready. How in the world can she make herself ready if we think in terms of the church? How can the church, it's not by works, how can she make herself ready? But whenever you take that and group it with verse number 8, that and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. She has some help getting ready. Amen. It's not of her own accord, but she has some help getting ready. So everybody wants to go to Ephesians 2, 8. Well, it's by grace we are saved through faith. Well, that's true. But let's throw Scripture against Scripture when James said in James chapter 2 that faith without works is dead. And the Bible tells us in Romans 12 also that God has dealt to every man the measure or the capacity of, of faith. So if you're saved by faith, and faith by itself, if without works, is dead, and the faith that you even have is something, the capacity for that was dealt to you by God, then if you are saved by grace through faith, it is only because God dealt you a measure of faith. Uh-huh. He's given you something. It's not she made herself ready, but she received something from God that could allow her to get ready. Amen. That faith that first came, that capacity or measure of faith in Romans 12, 3, that first came from God, amen, allowed there to be salvation by grace through faith. And someone say, amen. Not only that, she made herself ready, but there was things granted to her. Philippians 2 and verse number 12, the Bible says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, everybody say obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So you obeyed when I was around and you obeyed when I was gone in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What's he saying? He's saying make yourself ready, but you have some help. Because the spirit you received is working in you to do the will of God, to do what is right, to do what is proper. God is working in you to be obedient to his will. So the bride has made herself ready by the power of God and by the grace of God by permitting the spirit that she's received to work in her. If, 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 if there's someone been born again in the water of the spirit that is not ready whenever the church is to be taken, it's because she's not permitted what she has received uh-huh, to sanctification, every day save her, uh-huh, or allowed it to work in her life to grow from where she is to where she needs to be. Amen. He says that that fine linen that was granted to her in verse number 7, given to her is the righteousness of the saints. Jesus told the Laodicea church in Revelations 3, speaking of them, he said, buy of me gold. He even said, take of me of white raiment. In other words, if there's any white garments or white raiment to be received or had, if you have them, you obtain them from me. 
They're from Christ. You get them from me. The Bible says in Isaiah 61 and verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful, my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Isaiah 64, 6, you don't have to go there. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 and 10, that's our righteousness of the saints, filthy rags. None righteous, no, not one. But throwing in one of my favorite verses here, never forget it. Do you know what it is? 2 Corinthians 5, 19, and I'm going to throw in verse 21. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses. Look, not imputing their trespasses unto them and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Look at verse 21. For he, that is God, hath made him to be, er, for he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, what those verses tell me, verse 19, verse 21, he didn't impute trespasses to us. They were ours, but he didn't assign them to us. Our sins were assigned to Christ and Christ's righteousness was assigned to us. His righteousness became the righteousness of the saints. When you're born again of the water and the spirit, we have his righteousness accredited to us. Amen. He gave her linen, that is the righteousness of the saints, but it came from him. Amen. He took our sin, gave us his righteousness. And it became the righteousness of the saints. Verse number nine. Here is a blessed. One of the beatitudes of Revelation. This is number four of the beatitudes of Revelation. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the word they. The word they may be or could be a reference to the bride in the sense that she is comprised of many members, many people that call to her to become a part of the church or individuals even to become a part of the church was an indirect call, you might say, to be the bride of Christ. Blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. However, some believe, I'm just throwing this out here for thought, Provocation. Some believe the bride is not called or invited to her own marriage supper. Why would the bride be called to her? I mean, you don't send out an invitation to yourself for your wedding. Speculation of some. Don't have anything to prove this. This is just something to think about. Some believe that the word they there is something other than the bride. For instance, like the guests that attend such an event. Jesus speaking in Luke 22 and verse 15, he says this with his disciples, and he said to them, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He states in Matthew 26 and verse 29, Jesus speaking, but I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is speaking to a group of people, disciples. 
he is speaking to a group of pre-cross people, all right, pre-resurrection people, pre-church people. Church non-existence yet. He's speaking to a group of people and telling them that the bread and the fruit of the vine that I'm drinking now, I will not drink with you again until the kingdom and the festival there. In other words, he's telling them, I'll do this again with you, pre-cross people, pre-church people, again at the kingdom, the feast. One man once said it like this, and again, this is just, this is just get your brain to turn. I can't give you an absolute yes or no, but just to think. One man said this includes the they, the they, blessed are they, which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. This includes Israel. This includes Gentile believers of the Old Testament because they're not born again of the water and the Spirit. Tribulation saints, both Jew and Gentile, everybody outside the church says that the hope of a happy marriage for the church is the same as the hope of a kingdom for Israel. Matter of fact, in John 3, 29, speaking of John the Baptist, the Bible says, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bride, John the Baptist speaking of himself, the friend of the bride, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. In other words, could it be possible then the church is the bride of Christ, but those that are not born of the water and the spirit, but was saved by the gospel of the kingdom, pre-salvation days, Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, David, could be guest of guest of the marriage, and blessed are they if they're a part of it. And yet we see later that they still have some type of presence in the new Jerusalem. Just thoughts to ponder. Revelation 19, reason to rejoice because the book of Revelation, here it is, it's not been about prophecy. We knew from the very beginning it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus. That's the theme of the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ in his glory. So you have all these scenes from Revelation chapter 6 all the way up here to Revelation chapter 18, and there's judgment and there's judgment, but all that is serving as is a backdrop to where Christ can return with his glory, a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate real thing that is stated right here. And so we have the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then it will be next week, finishing up chapter 19, that we'll move on to some of those sessions of the Battle of Armageddon that no doubt groups along with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, we don't have much more uh, really in the book of Revelation beyond this. Just telling you right now, uh, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Satan's going to be bound a thousand years. The little new heaven and new earth's going to come down. It's going to describe everything else about that. And uh, it's going to be come quickly then, Lord Jesus. Amen. That's really the gist of it. If you'll stand with me here this evening. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.